Welcome back to the Generic Foiling Podcast. Freddie here. We're churning them out, it feels like, at the moment. This is the third one I've done on the trot now. And because we did a couple back-to-back in the same week with Rob, and we had that long interview there, and then with the short stories, it feels like we are absolutely on fire. Today is no exception. I have been looking forward to releasing this since we recorded it. Uh, there's been a couple of delays on Access's side with uh, some product launches, so they kept telling us to d- delay it another few days and another few days. Incredibly frustrating, but it's finally here. Fingers crossed the Spitfire range of wings from Axis has just been launched. Um, again, I'm recording this a couple of days before it actually is supposed to happen, so hopefully it's happened by now. Uh, otherwise, we're going to get a bit of a telling off. Uh, we've got Adrian from Axis, Mr. Axis, head designer, co-founder of Axis Foils and, and previously Kiteboards. It's a gem of a one. We talk about the design prospects or the design um, uh, briefs into the new Spitfire series. We talk about the Art Pro range and where that came from. We talk about the new skinnies and then we talk about absolutely anything and everything else as well. I think Adrian was quite surprised where this conversation actually went, judging by his or the conversation that we've had since then. Um, I've wanted to do this ever since we started the podcast, obviously with my connection being an Axis sales rep in the UK, my interest in the brand and a little bit of admiration for the design side of things from Axis, so it was very intriguing. I also wanted to let Liam and Adrian loose with each other and see what happened, wind them up and let them both go. And uh, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised and happy by all of it. It's a banger. I don't want to talk for too long. It's two and a half or two hours long, I think. We'll get straight to it and I'll see you at the end. Enjoy. Do not disturb. We're bloody off. Shall I get, I'll do my phone as a do not disturb as well. How do I do that? Do not disturb. I actually have my phone on silent most of the time now just because I said... Um, it's fantastic. You get to the end of the day and there's 20 missed calls. It's great. <laughs> oh, man, you're not wrong. If it can be uh, put out of the way, that's fine. Yep. So, Freddie, Freddie says you've been feeling a bit under the weather. Thanks for joining us still. Yep. Yeah, I've just been traveling too much, I think. I did a uh, trip to China for two weeks and um, built 13 boards. I hadn't built boards for a while, so it's kind of cool to go back and um, – you know, I'd finished the shaping. I designed them in New Zealand, sent the files over, and then finished shaping them, and then you know, helped glass them, sand them, finish them all the way through. So that was a kind of a hard trip. It's hot over there as well, and then I came back to New Zealand for six days, and then I've just had nine days in Thailand, and man, that was hot there. Just sweated like mad, but it was. I it was a good enjoy, trip. quite enjoyed watching the the videos, the videos on the twelve oh one. You can see like. Sweat patches, it's so humid out there. Standing absolutely stationary in the shade under a tree, you would just be breaking out in total sweat. Just horrendous. Well, we're straight stuck in already. I've already got questions off the back of this China trip. We were going to ask you about Thailand, but we didn't realise you'd been to China as well. Was that a, a training thing for the factory? Well, everything's – all our stuff's basically built in China. It has been for years. We've tried working um, in Thailand, Philippines – Taiwan over the years, but China's um, still the best. And, you know, we've got about five different factories that we work for with for different products. And 
Um, normally, I do about five trips a year there, but of course, I haven't been anywhere for three years. So it was my first trip back after COVID, and it was really good to go back and um, see all the factories. We've got a lot of new stuff coming out, and so it was good to go and work with the factories and refine all the details of all of that. A lot of the stuff that we do... But talk me, talk me through... No, go on, sorry. A lot of the stuff that we do, <clears throat> you can't necessarily just send it over to China and, and get it built. You know, a lot of the stuff over the years, <clears throat> I've spent time working in the factories, actually teaching them how to do stuff and, and working with them. And, you know, the look of surprise um, to see some white guy in the sanding bay sweating like a lunatic sanding a board, you know, they, they don't expect people to be doing that. But, um you know, again, this trip I was shaping boards and I was in the shaping bay and there was um, someone in there with a clipboard, um, someone in there with microphone and camera and filming everything and half a dozen workers in there and looking and checking and, you know, you're, you're trying to uh, – I was trying to build boards but also trying to upskill them as much as I can while I'm there as well. So, like, how many people have you got watching and, and is it kind of supervising staff or have you got – all of the laborers there or watching hands-on? That particular factory, that particular example, there was um, there's half a dozen shapers and they were all in the in the bay with me when I was shaping the boards, for example. Um, and, yeah, they were all watching. And then there was a translator um, with a with a clipboard and, and recording everything as well. Uh, and I think there was somebody else in there as well. So there's probably eight in the shaping bay with me. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And I think a lot of people, well, I think those that maybe know of your online presence, and we're going to come on to sort of your interactions on social media and stuff later, but those that know you might not be surprised to hear that. But those that don't know of you might be surprised to hear that the founder and head designer of the brand is there well, on the ground going, yep, this is it. I, I actually started off, you know, 14 years old, 15 years old, building my first board. And I've been building boards ever since then. And I actually did it you know, quite full on for many years. And uh, I actually really enjoy it. I love sanding and shaping and I don't get much chance to do it. So it was it was good to get back there and, and do that as well. When you say the shaping, though, I presume it's still, I assume you're still CNC cutting something and then final shaping it? It's or? final shaping. So I actually spend a lot of time with the CNC side of things. Uh, I use Shape 3D and I try and get it so that it, pretty much comes off and I don't need to use anything more than 240 to finish the board. So it's quite simple finishing in my opinion, but you know, you've got to teach the workers how to get exactly what, what you're after. Um, the, the boards have a PVC sandwich top and bottom or, or sometimes just top and, you know, pr prepping the area where the PVC sandwich is going to go. And I, I sort of do as little as possible in that area so that you don't mess up the CNC shape. So, teach him to get that right and how to cut the PVC and how to vacuum it on and everything really and shaping that back and just key things. Some some of the listeners might have to forgive me for getting a bit too techy too early, but how much time do you spend on the compromise when you're setting up the CNC machine between fast output of the machine, i.e. using like a bigger bit size and you know faster passes and all the rest of it versus that comes with increased labor time doing the final finishing versus really optimizing the CNC machine and reducing labor. So most of... Do you spend much time on that personally? Most of the... Well, all, all of the factories that we've worked with in China, they all use the Aku machine. Do you know the Aku machine? 
So instead of having a router, I believe instead so. of having a router bit that goes down like this and cuts out things, they have a, a cutting wheel and it's three hundred and ten mil diameter. Yeah, that dome thing. Yeah, uh, it's it's, a, it's like a grinder with a 310 mil diameter wheel on it. So that's spinning round, and that can move. Uh, the the board actually moves through. So you know the the machine's set up for like a twenty foot board. So it's got a bed that goes all the way through twenty foot back and forwards through, and this disc actually does all of the cutting. So you can imagine that the 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 arc of the wheel actually. Um, you know, it takes the cusps off. It's not like a router bit like this because it's, you know, so round. Yeah. So it can cut, cut very, very quickly, and it does a very good job. So there's not much to um, to take back afterwards. Oh, interesting. It does some other things that are quite nice too. Is like for the I mentioned the PVC sandwich that we do on the deck of the boards, and um, again, we're probably getting way too technical straight away. But um, you know, I do I do a rebate for the the PVC on the deck of the board, and when I design it, it's a straight step like that. But of course, a cutting wheel can't cut that, so it actually cuts a, a you know a nice sort of slow step over. And I vacuum the PVC in so it just sort of stands up, and then feather that off when I sand it back in again. So the edge of the PVC goes from three mil tapered out to nothing. Um, and it means you get a very, very soft edge on your PVC. So it's not not hard. If you did it like a full rebate style, it would be, you know, strong as hell and then just a laminate next to it. So this makes a really nice transition and it makes it uh, stronger and nicer way to build it. Of course, I bet people didn't, just, didn't think we were going to get yeah, straight into right, the technicalities right, yeah. of board building right from the beginning. No, I, I, I want to ask more, but maybe we'll come back to this later. Yep. <laughs> I didn't think this either. I was looking forward to uh, asking... Rugby thoughts initially, Adrian, before we got anywhere close to foiling at all. Yep. We got a World Cup this year. Uh, yes. <laughs> yep. I reckon Ireland's going to win. Oh, yeah, I can see it. I was. I, I haven't actually kept up with any of the Kiwi um, games that's been going on, but I don't think they may be quite where they could be. Yeah. Um, I was going to hope you could enlighten me at all. Yep. I don't know how New Zealand's going to go this year. There's... Um Got some really good players, but I'm, I'm not really sure that we're ready to win the World Cup this year. We'll see. I want I want France to win. I would, never thought I'd say that. <laughs> but judging by how they've been playing, well, I mean, Ireland are playing really good as well, but France, when they're on, oh. You can never trust the French. <laughs> no, you can't. Did, <laughs> have you been, have you been uh, watching any of the Six Nations at all, or the, are they rugby over here? Um, I've been watching the... Or not so much. Um, following the Super... Super Rugby in New Zealand, and mm-hmm. um, they've uh, brought in Fiji and Tonga this year, which has been quite a quite an addition. How's that gone? They've been playing really well, actually. They're, they've, um, you know, they're strong players. Yeah, we got a few of the guys playing for well, even the likes of Bristol over here. There's a couple of I think they're Fijian yep. um, internationals. Oh, it's just mind-boggling watching them play. Yeah. Anyway, that's where I wanted the chat to go to to begin with because I was interested to know um, yeah. your your thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, I do remember. I never. I don't think I ever actually told you, Liam. But the first, the first and only time I've met Adrian was over in um, Nuremberg, wouldn't it, in Germany for the Paddle Expo show. Yep. And uh, he was he was being awfully rude, checking his phone and not really getting into a conversation with us. And it wasn't until 10 minutes into the conversation I realised he was checking his scores from one of the Australia games on the rugby. That was actually interesting because I was actually in uh, China 
for the start of the Rugby World Cup. And um, we went to uh, Shenzhen every weekend and watched the first Rugby World Cups there, um, you know, weekend after weekend. And then we were flying to Germany and we thought, oh, we watched in Shenzhen in China in an Irish bar. And that seemed to work well. So we're flying. There's always an Irish bar. Yeah, there's always an Irish bar. So we were flying to Germany and we thought, now where are we going to get this rugby? And we looked at the time we were landing and we're like, we only had like an hour and a half from when we landed for the, for the start of the test. So we, you know, got our bags and then we had to wait for Evan and then we just drove flat out, got to this bar, just walked in and bang, it was just starting straight away. And so we got to watch it there in Germany. And some idiot English folk were trying to. I can't remember trying to talk to you about foils yeah. and all you wanted to talk. And then, and then we we um, went to the the next. I think it was Nuremberg or wherever we were for the next one, and we went to an Irish mm. bar and watched it there as well. So it was kind of an Irish bar tour of the world to watch the Rugby World Cup. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to watch rugby around the world anywhere, Irish bars are probably the ones yeah. to, 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 that you would choose. It works because they're always going to be on. Yeah, it works. <laughs> All right, that's that's my bit over. Uh, you can talk about mean cord, <laughs> no, cord lengths on, and median stuff and all so that. So you you've been in China, then you had the Thailand trip recently. You got quite a lot of the Axis team together. Yeah, well, the, uh, the, that was the Thailand what was that trip about. So the Thailand trip was actually the Sonova dealer meeting, and it's a really good chance for us to go and meet up with a lot of our dealers from around the world. Sonova ran this meeting normally every year, but again, COVID for three years. Uh, but they invite uh, other other people that are in the industry that they're not necessarily conflicting. So it actually makes it um, a bigger meeting. It's a really good idea. And, um, yeah, so we went to that. And with the, the new stuff we've got coming out, we also took the opportunity to um, do some talking about the foils uh, on, on camera and also do some video. We were hoping for a bit more waves, and they had really good waves the week before and the week after. But the week that we were there, it was pretty flat. It's always the way, isn't it? Um, we spoke to Jeremy a lot whilst you were actually out there, and he was tearing his hair out. Mate, he just about lost it, eh? Scored pretty well when he went home. He did, but he just about lost it. He's um, he's a big wave guy, and he's a, he's a waterman, you know, and he's used to every day surfing something big. And, you know, every day he'd look it out and say, I'd never seen an ocean so flat. I've never seen it. And one day, he, one day he was just, he was beyond it. He just couldn't cope anymore. And he said, right, right, I'm going. And he um, put some Thai bark in his pocket, jumped on a 10 foot sup and just disappeared off out to sea. And he went something like 18 Ks down the coast, just exploring. And he had a bottle of water, I think. And I think he fell off and lost his sunglasses. Anyway, he ended up at some beach. Before he left, he said, if I'm not back by nine o'clock, send out a search party. I don't know where we would have sent the search party. But anyway, he, he disappeared off down the coast. He ended up <laughs> climbing up some bank and, and he, he had two coconuts and two one-litre bottles of water, ate some food, and then caught a taxi back. And he was back by five. He was fine. And he had sort of come right a bit from going and doing that. But it was a damish. Good God. That just adds to the interest in Jeremy Wilmot. Well, he's not normal. And then the day after that, he was out. We he They woke, they woke me up at you know, six o'clock and said, we've got to go out in the boat, got to go out in the boat. And it was him and Dylan. And we went off down the coast to somewhere in this inflatable boat with a leak. And it was one of those inflatables that doesn't actually have a hard bottom or anything. So if it goes flat, the whole thing goes down. We disappeared off down the coast, miles from anywhere. 
And um, Jeremy jumps over and he's sitting in the water videoing. There's jellyfish everywhere. Dylan's got a sting and he's, ow, 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 my foot and everything. And Jeremy's just sitting in the water trying to video and everything. And I was um, in the boat sort of keeping it away from them. Oh, God. And then as the water came in the boat from the leaks and everything, um, this massive ant nest came out. And the boat was just covered in these tide tie ants you know they just completely took over the boat and i was trying to kill them and squash them and then they're climbing all up all over me and they're in my ears and in my eyes and everything like that and then i had to jump out of the boat as well and you know it would just turned into one of those missions got some quite good footage yeah uh, because it was early morning light and cool background but not easy no wonder you're ill yeah that's true yeah it was uh it's good to see it was good to see that you'd done a trip and you'd got the boys out there and and you know, taking videos with Shannon, taking some bits and bobs. It's good. It's going to be good to see whatever comes out. We've already seen the 1201 videos that you did out there and the skinny rears. It's just nice for, I guess, people when the products are released to be able to see you talking about yeah. the products. Yeah, it was good. Good trip from that point of view. It was, it was great to get um, a few of the team riders together, you know, um, Shannon and um, Dylan and Jeremy, and we also had Dominic there, and I'd never met Dominic before, but I've been working with him for a long while. He's someone we, we I, I think we haven't spoken to him recently, but he's sent us quite a few messages in the past. We'd like to get him on because he's a very interesting bloke. He knows his stuff. Scares me with how much techie stuff. That might be another conversation that Liam and he have, and I just sat in the corner. Ooh, you're going to have to put aside you know, half a day for that one. He's a lot. He's very wordy. <laughs> Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. So how do you spend your time on the water, Adrian? Uh, do you get much time nowadays? Yep, yep. I try to get out. I haven't actually been out much recently because I've had so much travel. Um, the trip to China, I actually, they had some random uh, e-foil, and I went e-foiling in China one day, but that was that was the, that was it. And then I was only back for six days, and the, the, the conditions weren't suitable when I was back, and then... Thailand, it wasn't really right for me either, so I didn't really – there's a month of not, not doing that. But normally I get out um, – I live right at the beach, and it's about, you know, two minutes' drive or less down to the beach. Um, Remind me where you are again, Adrian. Are you Christchurch direction? No, in Wangapra, which is just north of Auckland. And Oh, wow. Oh, well. it's, a, it's a peninsula that sticks out, and it's kind of got beaches mm-hmm. that, that you know face every direction. So no matter where the wind comes from, you can find somewhere that's that's good exposure to the wind. And we actually get quite good waves as well in the, in the storms. And if you drive uh, north of here, we've got some really good beaches. Mangawai Heads is one of my favorites. And then the west coast is, is huge waves if you, if you want to go and can I assume that you're winging most of the time and what gear are you typically using? Mostly winging and my idea of winging is not being that powered up and not going that fast, but I like to go upwind a long way and then turn around and just surf all the way back down again on bumps. Um, so I like a wing that uh, – I judge a wing by what it's, how, it <clears throat> how it handles when you've got it flagged out and it's doing nothing. And, that was one of the uh, questions on the list, you know, was what is your favourite wing yeah. or favourite few, shall we say? Yep. Uh, and the other thing I, I like is a, a glidey foil. So my favourite, I've been working on the um, the Art Pro prototypes for quite a while and my favourite one, it's called a 1040 and it's actually the predecessor to what's going to be coming out as the 1051. And it's it's quite a big span, uh, very little cord, very straight across, and very little tip turn down. And it's 
very, very low drag compared to the ART. So you get on a wave and it, it just runs. It just runs and runs and you can just carve off downwind. Still turns pretty good. This is the conversation Liam and I have, have had prior to, to jumping on with you here is I know you ride. Liam was asking about it, um, but I, I knew you were a winger and I guess what you produce is what you want to ride as well. So Axis has been very well known for having quite large span, flatter wings for those glidey conditions. And presumably a lot of that is because you enjoy riding that kind of stuff. Well, I, I mainly do winging at the moment. I used to do an awful lot of sup foiling <clears throat> and I kind of ended up with a heart condition and uh, it, um, from Not sup from foiling. Sup foiling. No, but sup foiling brought it on. Um, like when I was paddling for a wave, my heart rate would often get up over 180 um, beats a minute. Wow. And occasionally it would tip over and go up to 200 beats a minute and, and then sort of go down to 40 and then back up to 200 and up and down all over the show. And it was triggered several times by uh, sup foiling. So I kind of stopped sup foiling for a while. And I guess I had about five years dealing with that. And I had me. It, it's called atrial fibrillation, and um, you know I think I had at least 10, 12 times. Um, and you just go into hospital, and they put an electric pad on here, one on the back, they put you to sleep, and they just give you a big doof and um, stop you and restart you. And it brings it all back into rhythm, and it's all good for a while. Uh, and then it comes back again. So uh, I had that, and I was also on drugs to sort of control it, which was bloody annoying because it, it throttles you right down and you you don't have the energy that you want. So I kind of put sup foiling to the side because I just couldn't deal with that. But I've actually had it um, fixed now. They, they go in through your groin and go up into your heart and with a bunch of tubes and stuff, and um, they work out. They put a camera down your throat so they can see where they're going, and they uh, burn part of your heart where there's too many I had too many electrical signals so they burn that with a little balloon full of liquid nitrogen they nuke that part of your heart and then they just pull everything back out again and you're good to go And I've had that up I guess about how the hell do they figure that out well it's been they've been doing it for 20 years or more it's not new they used to do it with a Mental. laser and now they do it with a, a balloon of liquid nitrogen <laughs> He went a hell of a long way around answering what yeah, his yeah, favourite wing that. is, there didn't he? There was no answer about the favourite wing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the wing, I, my favourite wing at the moment is uh, the F1 Strike, and I, I like it because it, it's very, very light. Freddie's <laughs> <laughs> ripping his air out. That's the, I'm uh, the constantly riding. That is the no, wrong no, answer, that's, Adrian. That's very much the correct answer, Adrian. <laughs> very much the correct answer. Well done. It's um, all I ever get nowadays. Well, I just it like I there's a, there is like quite a bit of the stuff I do with the high aspect stuff is is upwind. You know, you're going upwind, and I feel like um, I can go upwind a hell of a lot higher than the wing can cope with. I kind of have to bear off just to actually fill the wing. So I think the the wings are far too uh, full, too deep. You know, they they you can't point high enough with them. Um, but it doesn't matter because I get up wind quick enough. And my main thing, like I said, is when you're holding the wing behind you, I want it to do absolutely nothing. I can't handle one that, you know, rolls around in your arm and tries to flip over and all that sort of carry on. I don't like the boomy things too. My hands are um, destroyed from 
you know, years of power tools and stuff. They've got these um, Dupion's contracture, so that that's as straight as I can get my fingers. And holding on to something fat like a boom is actually really hard, whereas the skinny little handles, you just kind of hook your claws over and off you go. So works for me. Well, it's definitely it's definitely been a very a very prominent wing over here. Everyone I ride with rides strikes at the moment, which is uh, comical between myself and Liam all the time. I just like that, you know, I'm in good company with the people that have the same opinions as me, Freddie. That's pretty good. <laughs> All of the people I respect, you know. <laughs> but not me. I do agree with you, Adrian, about the boom thing, though. Um, and what I've actually had a go with a couple of products, not so much with a boom, but with hard handles in the last two weeks. And I've tried the new unit and then I've tried that new Nash ADX wing. And it's really interesting how the handle sort of layout is almost identical between the two, but that Nash one's got just a slightly reduced diameter. And I found yep. that to be so much more comfortable because it's, like you say, a bit more similar to the soft handles. And I don't know how people deal with those bigger diameter grips. I had a go of a, uh, uh, I think it was called a Takuma something or other, and it had a, a the carbony RS, handle on it. Um, but if you if you cut it in half and looked at it, it's kind of teardrop shaped, so it's very very pointed in the in the inside of it, and it fits inside your hand really well. And that was actually quite a comfortable handle if you had to have a handle. Um, and the other thing that was kind of weird about that is the, the 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 front handle was bent towards you, so the the upright that goes up to the strut, you could get your hand onto it like that, so you could hold it like that, and it gave you extra control. That, that was quite nice. Yeah. I yeah I didn't the one I had was a small one it was like a three five and um, that was quite good some of the bigger ones seemed a bit unwieldy but the three five was quite nice I was just going to say that you know uh, I've sort of used a lot of wings on the way through and and the skin tension you know having something that sort of when you first blow it up having skin tension in there um, seems to be really important to control the shape whereas the Takuma it didn't have that at all. Um, and I didn't think I'd like it, but, you know, it was quite a baggy, flappy canopy, but a very stiff strut. So there's more than one way of working that out. Yeah, I think that's going to be something that's something that will get written and spoken to death between videos and reviews um, is exactly what you're talking about, skin tension and the brands that are having these radial cuts in the canopy to get the fiber orientation appropriate to the load and all the rest of it. And you can see some brands, it's still just like an old kite was, you know, leading edge to trailing edge direct. And I think that will get talked about quite a lot, no doubt. I've got a stupid idea. Um, uh, and that is that I reckon they need out all. And um, one way of doing it might be to do like a track on the back of the strut that you hold on to. Um, and you could do it like a, a, a track you have on a uh, on a yacht mast, but you could do it in um, like a plastic so that it's slightly flexible and you could roll it up and stuff. Um, and then the, you have like a bolt rope in your canopy. And that way you could actually have an outhaul system and pull it out flatter for when you're going upwind and, you know. That would be pretty cool. Actually have something you can go upwind. Yeah. I really like to have a go with some of those fixed products, you know, the ones that you've seen. Um, that people use for like the ice skating and stuff, the fixed wings. I, I saw Simon Sanderson built one the other day. Have you seen that one? No. Yes. Carbon. Yeah, uh, I think Simon. Yeah, Simon had sent a photo of it to Tom. And looks uh, pretty cool. Me. I looks didn't really, cool. I didn't really know much other than it looked very expensive to crash. 
<laughs> he reckons it only cost him two hundred and fifty bucks worth of materials. Wow. What's so? Yeah. What's the idea with one of those? Then I, I, I never actually went any further into it. So, like, you know, you're basically holding onto a wing, and the wing has this massive blow-up leading edge to give the whole thing structure so that it's stable. Um, and of course, that massive blow-up leading edge is not the most perfect thing from an aerodynamic point of view. So, um, you know, he's trying to build something that's lower drag. Uh, yeah, lower well, drag. Yeah, I, get, I mean, it's not a perfect <laughs> comparison, but I suppose it's a little bit like comparing a leading edge inflatable kite to a foil kite in that one's producing a more accurate airfoil profile than the other. It's kind of a similar-ish comparison to get your head yeah. around it. Yep. Um, I guess. I'm here to talk about foils got, as opposed to. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was going to say. We're I know there's a lot track. of new gear. There's <laughs> there's a lot. Of, well, you'll be happy to know as well, Adrian, that my next question was actually talking about Axis new products. So we're getting the okay. plugs in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we move on to all the new stuff that's coming, because I know there is quite a lot of new stuff that's coming. Um, what products are you actually most proud of so far within the foiling lineup? Because I think you've been responsible for a bit of trend setting, and what are you most proud of? Um, oh, I think the ART was kind of one of the first high aspect wings that was easy to ride and accessible to to most. Um, I think a lot of the other high aspect wings at the time were um, and still are very high end, difficult, tricky to use. I think that was a pretty user friendly wing, um, and quite happy about the the work we put into that you know coming to something that people really like um i probably going right back to the very beginning when we started uh foiling and our very first wing for was the 920 you know we were doing kite foils but then we started doing sup foils and we did the old 920 from 100 years ago and we did that on an oem mask it was a mask that you know anyone could buy and use and it was quite narrow it was 15 mils thick and it was just way too wobbly and you, there was no control, no connection. So right back in the beginning, we kind of uh, went back and redesigned masts and that's where we came up with our 19 mil mast and the joints, you know, the way that the fuselage joined inside of the mast and all of that. So I think <clears throat> while other people were frantically building foils and selling them, we were wasting time redesigning them so that they're stiff and solid and, you know, well-connected and, you know, a sensible way to build foils. And I think I that definitely is, don't think that was wasted time, eh? No, no. And I think yeah, the connections is something we'll definitely come on to. If you're trying to make money, it was perhaps a waste of time because, you know, other people were selling stuff and we were frustratingly mucking around trying to work out the, you know, a sensible way to build it strong. And I do think that is a, an absolute key uh, going forward that, you know, you need to have, you, simply put, you're riding the front wing and you need to be connected to that front wing. It is impossible for that to be too stiff a connection. It's a long dangly thing, a long way from your board. And, you know, the, the join from your, your wing to your fuselage and your fuselage to your mast and the stiffness of the mast, all of that sort of thing is absolutely critical. And uh, it seems to me that a lot of people haven't quite grasped that yet. We were discussing the the pump file setup that we used uh, today, the sub leviathan um, yeah looking at the front connection of it and you can't deny the fact that it pumps like crazy but yeah. obviously that front connection point is is 
the opposite to what you've done. It's a inline three bolts M8 still, so it's very small surface area, very flat surface area, like no interlocking features whatsoever. Which yeah. is quite a lot for a eighteen hundred mil span wing. It would be curious to know how it would respond. That was that was one of the first things I said to Freddie was, "Don't get me wrong, I'm." terrible at dock starting and so i was literally barely gliding for a few meters but as soon as you did successfully glide and as soon as you did try and put any energy down through it obviously it's going to feel different because the thing's such a massive span but it did feel jolty as hell and one of the first things i said to freddie was i wonder how this would feel if the head plate was an axis head plate i also didn't know if it was movement from the head or whether it was flexing the mast with having that much span it's every single it's every single every single part of it you know and you i, I guess you got to start with the mast the mast you know it's got to be absolutely rock solid and um when we do our bend test we basically do it in a, in a cantilever fashion so we have the mast and it sticks out from the wall and we hang 25 kg off the end and we measure how much deflection how much it bends sideways and you can only test like with like. So if you're doing 900 mil mass, you need to test against 900 mil mass. You can't test against the 750 because obviously the the, the leverage yeah, sure. would be different. So you know we do that, and every mass that we do, we you know we measure that and test the stiffness. And um, our aluminium mast, 19 mil aluminium, it's actually pretty good. Like it's it's stiffer than quite a few carbon masts out there. Um, and also, when you do that bend test, we do that uh, on the computer when we design a mast as well. So we can do that um, with finite element analysis. So we can bend it, and it shows you where the stress is in the mast. And we can redesign it and redesign it. And basically what it comes down to is that you need to have an awful lot in the head of it, you know, where it comes into the base plate. That's where most of the load is, is going. And um, I can kind of evidence that by the fact that if you've ever seen a broken mast or, or or a base plate that you know anything that's kinked, it always breaks just around the base plate, just down from there. That's where the maximum load in the mast is. So that point, hundred, you know, just down from the, the the base plate, that's where it needs to be absolutely solid. So you need the fibers running continuously through there, and that that is possibly the 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 point where you're least able to have a join. It doesn't make any sense to have a join there. You know, you need to have solid fibres running all the way through. And I, I don't understand how people don't just do that. You know, the the base plate and the mast need to be one piece and they need to have the fibres running all the way from the base plate all the way to the bottom of the mast. And they actually need to run into the connection that goes into your fuselage and how you, how you join it together. I'll try and word this politically because, of course, no, no brand wants to directly badmouth any other brand but i'm assuming that you benchmark masts against every you know other top 10 of the um brand brands for example and i assume that you're very confident in that axis what's the top of the range one called the power carbon one versus everything else that's power, on the market. power carbon high modulus so i i i don't go out of my way to test everyone else's mast but if somebody drops one by and says hey see what the bend is on this i will bend that and i'll test it and and i'll get the results from that and i have got the results from that um there's a couple of them i've tested and i've got results and they're they're nowhere near nowhere near um 
the excess power carbon or the power carbon high modulus. I have I am yet to find a mask that's anywhere near as stiff as that. So I should explain that as well. So you know, we had we had our nineteen mil aluminium, and it's pretty good, it's pretty stiff, but it is nineteen mils. So you've got the nineteen mils at the top, which is what you need to make it solid, but you've still got the nineteen mils pushing through the water down the bottom, which is, you know, quite a bit of drag. A carbon mast allows you to put thickness where you want it and taper it out to less where you where you don't need it so much. So the bit that's cutting the water on the power carbon mast is about fifteen mils thick versus nineteen mils. So it's lower drag down the bottom. But it's actually thicker up the top, uh, 100 mils down from the base plate. It's still 20 mils thick. So the shape's quite well designed to give you a really stiff, solid mast. Um, Can the, you get any thinner in the future? Sorry? Is, is the materials going to allow you to go any thinner? Yeah. And, and maintain rigidity? It depends how much money you got, um, is what it comes down to. So the... The, the the normal power carbon that is twenty five percent stiffer than our nineteen mil aluminium. Um, the power carbon high modulus that one is thirty five percent stiffer than the, the nineteen mil aluminium. Um, the mast that I'm writing at the moment it's it's made of some military grade carbon that we got and it's actually fifty five percent stiffer than the aluminium. It's unbelievable. And what would I the, know. Um sort of percentage difference cost-wise be if that came to market? It's about double. A high modulus. Double the high modulus power carbon? Yeah. So if we get a bunch of people crying out to you now going, I've heard this and I've got the money and I want it, is that going into production to 200 units? No, not not, not at this stage. I mean, we're looking at it, but it's, it, it's just a crazy expensive mast. But I guess the point of that was... Um, I, I ride that myself, and the control that I get compared to any other mast is just unbelievable, especially with bigger span wings. I, I would say whenever I test any wing now, I also go back and test on you know the normal high modulus and the power carbon as well, so I know that it works on all three masts. But you know, the stiffer you can get, the better it is, the more connected the feel. And, and if I could get it way stiffer again from that, I'm sure it would be better again. Where do we go with the um, convert? conversation about speed with thickness because obviously your direction seems to have gone towards stiffness but does that mean because i think liam yesterday was mentioning that there's a new f1 mast coming or maybe it was rich at 14 mil you know are, are we should we be looking at thinnerness so we can go faster um, at so some point? that's that's actually Thickness and speed is actually a good question. So um, people yes. just automatically people automatically assume that a, ma a wing or a mast, if it's thinner, is going to be lower drag. But that's not necessarily so. Um, there are other foil sections out there. Like when we were testing the, um, for the AR ART Pro, we actually found another foil section that was uh, – so the ART Pros, the smaller ones, they're generally about 10.5% thick. You understand the thickness percentage? Yeah. Uh, and Well, wow, do, it, do it for the audience. Yeah, do it, okay. do it for me, so, Adrian. So they're 10.5% thick. So if the cord was 100 mils, the wing would be 10.5 millimetres thick. So it's 10.5% of the cord is the thickness. Uh, 
And we found another foil section that's actually 11.34, and it's, it's actually way faster. So you've got to be careful assuming that just because it's thinner, it's faster. You know, you can actually have something that's thicker, and it's it's lower drag, depending on what it is. And the same with masts. I mean, we found a foil section the other day that's 20% less drag at the same thickness. When you say foil section, are you meaning sort of the thickest part of the foil? No, foil section of foil section is 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 the actual shape of the of the mast a cross section of the mast or a cross section of the wing uh and the the foil section is the entire foil section you know it it's so specific now you can't say oh it's got a finer leading edge or the the top the the leading the thickness is further back or you know honestly some of the foil sections that we've tested you you put the two foil sections on top of each other there's barely any recognizable difference but the performance, one works, one doesn't work. It's really subtle and it's really difficult to tell. So looking at a foil, it's almost pointless. You know, you can't really tell anything from that. The subtleties of how foil... I'll tell I'll tell that to all my customers, Adrian. <clears throat> yeah. Well, if anybody that's listening that doesn't have, you know, a, a, I'm not even going to say comprehensive because I'm not going to say comprehensive, but even an elementary understanding of like aerodynamics think back to a super early episode where we talked about the lift equation and the drag equation and know that any airfoil section that Adrian's talking about, there is a coefficient of lift associated with it and a coefficient of drag associated with it. And that's like a multiplier that gets thrown into an equation and that'll be relevant for various different angles of attack. And if you just look online and you Google coefficient of lift graphs for airfoil sections you can literally click through a hundred different sample airfoil sections and you'll see that even though they look pretty much the same on the computer the graphs that comes out in terms of the coefficient of lift is drastically different and that's basically what we're talking about right it's it's worse than that there's not hundreds there's thousands there's literally thousands of different foil sections and not only that is you know so when we when we pick a foil section you know uh, you can compare this foil section to this foil section. And how, how we do it is we uh, actually draw up a wing with that foil section and we run an analysis on it. Um, so it's a simulation. And that actually gives you a, a graph or gives you a bunch of data. But one of the graphs that we use is um, uh, you know drag and, and the speed that you're going. And it, and it basically shows you where the foil takes off it's takeoff speed and then it and it reduces drag till it's got a sweet spot where it's its lowest most efficient and then the drag comes back on again as it goes faster so looking at that that graph we can also build what you know we can test one wing in the virtual sense against another wing against another and you can put all these graphs on top of each other and you can look and see oh yeah that one's got a little bit better takeoff this one's got a little bit better top end you know you can compare them completely and we've been doing that for a few years now. And we actually started off doing it retrospectively on uh, the ART and BSC and HPS wings. And we plotted all the graphs and they all came out. I looked at it and went, yep, that's not really telling us anything. I could have told you all of that. And then I sort of thought, well, hang on, that's actually really critical. You know, if that's it's basically reinforced what we've already tested and what we know. So we actually started using that going forward. And it's proven itself to be really, really useful for working out whether a wing is actually going to give you a gain or not. So, um, what, A key bit of what you've just talked about, which is something that I've always 
found really interesting and tried to express to people from when I've worked in positions of like sales post teaching and trying to recommend them a product that will be good for them. Um, it's the fact that, like you said, there is an optimal design speed. There is a point at which it gets to the point where there is minimum drag and then it increases again. And so that's kind of the sweet spot from a riding feeling perspective. For, for, and of for course, that if, foil. if you've for yeah. that foil, yeah. And, and my point would be is that if you have two people riding along and they are 20 kilos weight difference, they may both be going at 16 miles an hour, but one of them Completely. might be riding it at an angle of attack, which is matching the design speed in terms of minimum drag and the other one might have to have a slightly increased angle of attack and they're actually into the more draggier section because they're heavier and like people don't take this into account and they so, look at another rider and go look at how good of a time that guy's having but it's like well one he rides at a totally different speed to you and likes to and two he's either two stone lighter two stone heavier whatever so in that simulation that that is for a given weight so you actually do that with a exactly, preset yeah. weight. You, you, you choose a weight. And we can rerun the same test with a different weight and replot the graph and, and work it all out from that. And you were mentioning, you know, hundreds, and I said there's thousands of different four sections um, in between each one. So if you choose this four section and this four section, they've both got really, you're liking certain points of the graphs, you can actually get a four section that's somewhere in between those two. You can create that and you can create it, you know, 75% towards this one or, or whatever and then then you can run analysis on that and work out what that is and then you can actually build your foil to that but it just kind of goes on and on and on from ever you can also draw your own foil sections and a lot of the foil sections we use are our own foil sections that we've come up with they're not even published foil sections but we've kind of educated ourselves to draw that from trying a whole bunch of stuff that are around that area so what software are you doing the CFD on? Uh, we use a whole bunch of different stuff. There's actually um, there's Shape 3D has actually done quite a bit of work with that lately, uh, and the SolidWorks and Rhino we use for drawing. Um, it's a it's a bunch of stuff in between the whole lot. I don't want to go into too much detail and make, make it too easy for anyone else with that, but you can. There's there's stuff out there. I don't think I'll be trying to copy anything anytime soon, Adrian. I don't know what you've been talking about for the last five minutes. <laughs> it's um, it's actually really interesting to do all of that because, you know, going back a few years, you know, we'd come up with an idea, we'd design a, a foil and we would send it away uh, to, to, to get built. A lot of what we're doing now, it's very difficult to do a prototype because – you know, you could do a prototype and you could it could fail just because of the construction that you've done. You pretty much have to build it exactly the same way as that you build your production wings. So that means you need to go to a tooling steel mold. So you've got to finish the design, send it away to China, get a tooling steel mold built, build it out of prepreg carbon, and then get it posted back and, and, and go out and test it. And that, that cycle, that's like a six-week cycle. So you come up with an idea, six weeks later, you've got it in your hands, you can test it. And, and then is it better, is it worse, what does it do, whatever. And then you can go forward from there. But with a lot of the analysis that we're doing now, you know, it's half an hour and you can try it and get a result and you don't even have to pull a wetsuit on or anything. It's great. It's really fun. interesting that you – so one of my questions was going to be talking about prototyping construction methodology versus, you know, final manufacturing production methodologies and – 
Um, I know that you contribute to groups where people are trying DIY projects and stuff like that. And it's really interesting that as somebody that talks so much about the importance of stiffness, it sounds as though, yeah, you're not really having a a prototype production methodology anymore. It's like either we're doing the final version or we're not bothering. Well, we we do a little bit with it, but it's and it's indicative of where you're going. But you can't rely on it 100. percent You know, you it, it does get difficult. I didn't quite finish what I was saying before with the with the mask, but it, you reminded me of it there. And that is that when we got these ultra ultra stiff masks, um, previous to that, uh, stuff was bending and moving, but you couldn't really tell where it was bending or moving. When we got the really stiff mast. You could then feel the, the the wings bending, and we actually changed the construction of the wings quite a bit. And no way. Um, you know, went back and, and you know reworked the laminations to make them stiffer. And basically, what we found with that is not necessarily the stiffest wing in the world is is really good. It's actually good to have some flex in your wing. Again, you're never going to get it too stiff, but. Um, the most important thing with the wing is to get it stiff and rigid around the middle of the of the wing. So, you know, concentrating a lot more carbon, taking any core out around the center section, and then tapering it. Tapering the, the core is actually more towards the mid or outer section because having some, some flex in the wing further out was actually beneficial. But in the mast, you want so- it as stiff as possible. Bringing it sort of from development back to product, why have you chosen to introduce the new arts as Art Pro? As so they were, they're, just they're, the, they're, yeah, uh, as soon as we finished the art, two years ago, I guess, we finished the ART 999. <clears throat> Pretty much the day after we finished that, um, we started designing a new wing and it was an, it was 999 span as well. And on that, uh, we knocked 10 mils of, of cord off it, um, same foil section, and we also did a straight median line. That was our very first straight median line wing. So, you know, the wings, historically, you know, we've always had curvature sweeping back in the wing. And we did that, everybody did that, because we imagined that it was like a surfboard fin. It gave you a nice turning wing, that, that sweep gave you a nice turn. But... The ART, we actually felt the 999 actually turned really, really well, and it had gone further and further and further forward. So we ended up with a wing that was, you know, quite straight across. But if you looked at the thickest point on the on the ART 999, it does actually have some curvature as it goes out. So the straight median line means that the thickest point of the wing is a dead straight line from edge to edge. So that was our first straight median line wing, and it turned really 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 well there were some other things wrong with that wing that didn't work perfectly from other points of view but it it had some really positive things going for it so we started working from there and we kind of felt like we had the benefit of time because we'd just released the art and it was a really good wing on the market so we didn't urgently need to come up with something to to you know or else we're going to miss the market you know we we had something that was good in the industry so we sort of stuck with it and we did I would say four giant steps forward from the from the ART, and um, that's where the ART Pro has come out of it. Um, we've happened to do the the biggest one first, the the twelve oh one, but the smaller ones are actually my favourites, and 
Really looking forward to getting those out there. Um, basically, so each each what's revision. The, what's the benefit of of having art and art pro? Or will the art get phased out? Yeah, what's the plan with it? So the art pro is is like when you when you see it, and the smaller ones especially, it's got a lot less cord, like a lot, and it's also got a lot less thickness. It's not that hard to use, but it is a heck of a step on from the ART. So, okay. you know, it, it, it's kind of an advanced only wing. It's not, not a um, – it it's a step on from the ART. Yeah, that's fair. And so, yeah, all, all that, that size lineup will presumably be getting filled in as time goes on. Yep, yep. We've got uh, the 1201 and then we've got another, I think, four smaller sizes that are, that are being built now and they – They'll come out in a while, and we'll, we'll do an announcement about those. The other one that we've come out with, and I've talked to you a little bit about, is the the Spitfire. And I think Oof, this interview is going to come out after after we've um, released that one. So, um, at the same time as we were developing the the Art Pro and going through all the stuff from that, the last two years from that, we kind of worked out a, a whole pile of stuff that worked really well for the Art Pro. At the same time as that, we were trying to do. A specific surf wing and um, we made some progress but we didn't have anything that was you know it was an absolute massive step forward um, I guess the key things we were trying to do is get something that uh, was still able to pump and connect I mean it's no point in having a foil that's fantastic for wave riding if you can't pump and connect so you still need to be able to connect half a dozen waves if you can't do that you know, it's it's not really working. But you also want a foil that turns tight in the pocket. And the way that people are riding on the waves now with the foils, they're getting tighter on the wave. They're, they're hitting the white water. They're doing aerials. So you need something that can come in and out of the water a lot more. A lot of the turns, you're popping a tip. So we need something that can pop a tip reliably without actually affecting your, your turning. And we actually took all of the learnings that were done in the ART to develop the ART Pro and our, we'd been doing all these waves ones, and we kind of came up with this crazy idea of let's just do, you know, basically a, a, a mid-aspect of the ART Pro, and that's kind of what the Spitfire is. It's It's got a, a reasonable amount of cord in the middle. Um, I've got this theory about uh, taper in a wing. So you've got your, your maximum cord, and then the wing tapers towards the tip. And if you measure, say, 50 mils in from the tip and get that measurement there, and you work that out as a as a percentage, you know, um, a, a, you know, more taper uh, makes the wing easier to turn and more more willing and wanting to turn. Um, having the wing more parallel uh, also makes it more stable. If you've got it too big in the tip, it's too hard to turn. So there's a there's a we've kind of worked out a balance of what kind of works for uh, race style wings and for surfing style wings. So we kind of had a form- formula for that and. We were, we were doing a straight median line, uh, and the the Spitfire, it's very elliptical. You know, it's just a, a an elliptical wing. Our Art Pros, those are all actually elliptical wings as well. But because they're long and narrow and skinny, we've ended up cutting the very end of the tip off because it gets so narrow that be, below a certain uh, amount of cord, the tip just becomes drag. It doesn't actually do anything beneficial for you. So on the long skinny wings, it is actually an elliptical wing, but it's been lopped off at the end. With the Spitfire wings, when we drew it up, um, 
it kind of flowed nicely into the tip. There was sort of no need to cut any tip off, so we just left it elliptical exactly as it was. <clears throat> anyway, we did our first sample of that wing and sent it out to a bunch of team riders to ride. And I think Jeremy was one of the first to, to get it in Australia. And <laughs> his his first day riding, he was just raving about it. And then second day riding it, even more confidence. And he actually said, if ever there was a time to push the magic buzzer, this is the time. And he'd never said that with any wing before. And it is it is truly amazing as a step forward in surfing and super excited to see how that responded to when it gets in the water. Um, the the connection and the way they surf, again, in the in the boat in Thailand, um, putting along, we'd tow Jeremy into waves and watching him actually surf these tiny little waves. But watching his feet and the way he the way he worked the board and the way he turned, it was absolutely pure surfing. First time I've seen it. No longer operating as a foiler. He's actually just looks like he's surfing. And the ability to um, do beautiful, smooth turns, but also link one, you know, your bottom turn to your top turn in a really smooth way. Still be able to snap it, you know, in a, in a, in a fast turn. You know, I, I haven't seen that in any other foil. And it, it's basically all of the ideas we had from the Art Pro, but done in a medium aspect. And it's got very little turn down. Uh, we found that if you have a lot of turn down on the tips, uh, what that does, we've tried to keep these wings simple, the Art Pro and the Spitfire. They're, they're ridiculously simple. And if you look at the, the Spitfire, it's very, very flat, and it's, you know, when viewed from the front. So the vector for lift is at 90 degrees to the to the wing. The vector is the same all the way out. If you've got a wing that goes up and down and curly bits all over it, you've got vectors that are going, you know, all over the show. So, um, one, that adds drag. And two, uh, you know, if you pop a tip out, you've got all these unbalanced forces all of a sudden. Whereas if you've got a wing that's virtually flat, when you pop, pop a tip out the the vectors are still going in the same place so it's more predictable and easier to feel how it's working i've got i've got a few so so many things to to, I, to jump in got, here i've got things as um, well like number uh, one with intriguing with old, to listen to number one old jezza there's a video that he released recently and i completely agree with what you're saying about the surf style but is it not it's all in the shoulders i remember watching this video and you can just see him loading up these turns and his entire upper body is just wound well before he executes yeah. it and then as the foil and board and everything come round it's like the shoulders are back the other way onto the next one and i i agree it's pretty mesmerizing um but we do we've got this written down and this is almost a bone to pick is that one of the best things that's come out of this is us being able to have little catch-ups with the Aussie guys off record and all the rest of it. And they have been banging on about this Spitfire for a long time. So my question to you is, where's it been? Why is it not out? And why is it not competing with the other products that are in that space? Um, it hasn't actually been that long since we've done it. It's been a pretty quick development cycle. Um, when Jeremy said, yep, let's push the magic buzzer, we'd, we'd, we'd actually, the list for what we wanted in that wing was extensive. And I think we'd given out, like we looked at the list, we wrote the list and then we looked back at the list and we kind of went, oh, that's going to take a while. And then we looked at it again and thought, you know, that's probably unlikely that you're going to get all of those things ticked off in one list. And it was sort of what I was describing before, something you can pump, um, something that'll handle um, power on a wave when it, when it 
picks up, something you can handle whitewater hits and, and tip breaches, um, turns nicely, all of those things. And we kind of thought, you know, it's, so we gave ourselves a year to do that wing. And the first one, Jeremy said, that's it, just go straight to production. But because we'd given ourselves a year, we actually had some ideas and we, we did a V2 of it. And the V2 was, you know, a lot better again. And that's the one we've actually released. And it, it's relatively quick development cycle. But I would say it's only a relatively quick development cycle because we spent the two years developing the ART Pro. And a lot of the learnings from that translated straight across. What I find um, when you're saying that, I'm just thinking, Liam, of uh, the F1 stuff. You know, we talked to Charles Bertrand the other day, the, one of the F1 designers, and he, he confirmed the stories that the skate had come about by literally just chopping the tips off the eagle or near enough. So That, that was the starting like a, point, yeah. Yeah, the starting point was taking something, just like you said there with the Art Pro, and just pff, chopping it down a touch smoothing it out and suddenly you've got this surfy style slightly more medium aspect wing but medium aspect because you've literally just chopped extra length off yeah it's quite intriguing to hear the similarities there um, well it is amazing how similar to me that the art pro and the spitfire they're, they're kind of exactly the same concept they look a bit different because one's so long and skinny um, and one's got a lot of cord in the middle and, and, and more taper, and the tips haven't actually been cut off it. But they're essentially a very similar wing, but just a different application of it. Um, and with that, you know, the ART Pro, it was designed primarily for competition downwinding, I guess, uh, but it also works incredibly well for winging. It's it's fast. It goes upwind really well. Um you know, very low drag off the wind. But we gave it to some of the prone guys uh, and they really like it because they can pump forever on it. You know, Dylan, um, he rode the 1040, which is the, the predecessor to the one that's coming out. And his first wave on that, he, he did over an hour linking up, surfing on it. And that's his favorite wing, well, until he got Spitfire. That was his favorite wing for surfing. The Spitfire, you can't pump for an hour. You know, it's just not that sort of wing. Um, whereas the Art Pro has very, very low drag and it's very, very efficient for its pumping. I can't pump anything for a minute, Adrian. I wouldn't worry about that so much. <laughs> Neither can I. I had a dream that I did it one day and I was yeah, really a good. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, we are intrigued. That Spitfire is obviously, I mean, I've been, I've been getting hounded over here. Um, you obviously know I'm the sales yep. rep over here for Axis and work with Tom. And yeah, we we've been getting hounded about it. The the F1 skates and the Armstrong MA have proven incredibly popular for for wingers over here, um, who want something more user friendly and more carvy in the waves. And all I've been getting is when's Axis well, is spit, coming out. The Spitfire absolutely nails that, and I I don't see any other wing that has the surfing properties of that. It's amazing to watch the connectedness of the turns and, and how beautifully it, it carves and, you know, how much of the tip you can pop out with no no big deal, no difference. Another thing we've kind of forgotten to mention is the, the new skinnies, the new rear wings. Um, yeah, we've basically seen a couple. With the, we did have a look, yep. a look. So with the development of the ART Pro, 
um, obviously it's very, very high aspect. And the more and more that it got long and skinny, we kept looking at the progressives on the rear and it was like, you know, it was way out of kilter. So we, we tried experimenting with some, uh, the, all of the skinnies are about 360 span. And we just tried a, a few different chords, narrow and narrow and narrow. And what it did, they're, they're, they're very similar to the progressive in, in as much as they've got a little bit of turn down, which allows you to, to roll into a turn nicely. Um, but with, with a lot less chord, what it does is uh, it doesn't build up the the pressure on your front foot. So if you uh, if you think about, your, you know, you've got your fuselage and you've got your rear wing. That's basically your stability. That's what that that's what gives you the stability that you've got. And depending who you are and what you've where you've come from and what you're at, the length of that fuselage is longer is better for someone that's not as good. The shorter it's way too too much for some people, but some people love it. And same with the rear wing. The the smaller that rear wing, the less stability it offers you. Um, so, but the problem with that whole thing is it's a bolt together preset. And you're going various speeds. You're going slow, medium, super fast when you're on a, on a massive wave and trucking along. And what happens is that, that that stability operation, your fuselage rear wing, just ends up building up so much pressure that you can barely hold it together with your front foot. The skinny rears, um, they're less drag, so they, they allow you to go quite a bit faster. And it's horrifying how much faster they do actually allow you to go. We had one guy here um, speed testing with a GPS and he was going from like a standard 375 progressive to one of the 360s by 45 and he got a higher top speed by two knots. And he, and he went back again afterwards and it, and it worked exactly the same in reverse. You know, it, it is a lot less drag. Um, they're a little bit squirrely because they're, they're basically designed to be uh, more in balance at the upper end of your operation rather than at the bottom end. So, you know, be terrible for beginners. And, you know, th if you go too small with them, they will be too squirrely and too difficult to use. But at speed, they become very comfortable and, you know, what normally out of control becomes easy to ride. So they were This comes back to what designed. we talked about, doesn't it, with the different – comes back to what we talked about with the different rider weight and preference as well. Some riders like to ride quicker than others. You might get one jump on that skinny rear wing and love it, and another one go, oh, that's horribly twitchy. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because you never got it fast enough for its intended purpose. And what do you see its intended purposes as these, Adrian, these skinny rears? Are they, are they winging in straight lines? Are they winging in waves? Where do you see it most? I actually, I, so they actually work really well with the um, Spitfire wings and they work really well with the art pros they actually work well with some of the other wings that run faster as well you know like the old hps and the um the art there'd be a there'd be a benefit in using them for that as well um i regard them as fine tuning so they're all about 360 span and they go uh chord 55 50 maximum chord 45 40 and 35 and depending on who you are and where you are in your journey you know, you, you kind of find the one that's just right for you. They're reasonably closely spaced. So I'm not expecting that anyone's going to have the whole range and use the whole range all the time. You find your spot. For me, um, I used to use 375, and that was my kind of go-to for progressives. Um, I used, at the start, I used the 360 by 55. Dead easy. You know, that was just a straight no-brainer from the 375. It was less drag, um, faster. It was nice to use. 
Um, I've ended up on the, the 50 at the moment. I use the 45 sometimes, but I find that a little bit twitchy. But everybody's different. Um, Shannon Stent, he, he, he started on the he, – he went right through the whole lot. He's ended up on the 40. He hasn't actually met the 35 yet, um, but he was really happy on the um, the 40 mil one, and he felt that was just perfect for him. So everybody has – uh, you know, a spot that'll work for them and, and the progressives, and it's finding it's it's a bit tricky, and it it is it is a little bit hard. I can't actually say, yep, your weight, your size, you're going to need this because it depends on you and what you like. That's because that's I can see going to be the conversation now. Uh, I'm even considering asking you myself as to what I would go for, so I know there's going to be users in the UK going to be asking me what they should be going for, and that's where having demo models is going to be so useful. But do you, you know, a lot of our guys are on those 375, 400s because when exactly when you brought the progressives out, I remember you saying, you know, I use a 400 and I do this and the 375 is a little bit more nimble and then you kept bringing out the smaller models. Um, would, would someone be looking maybe to dropping down progressive sizes or would they be moving down towards the skinnies? I mean, what's going to be the benefit of going for one over the other? If you're riding a 375 progressive um, and you change to one of the skinnies, I'd say that the 50 would be a middle ground to start with. Uh, you know, it's not too hard um, and it, it's it's a good transition down. It, it gives you a lot more speed, uh, allows you to go faster. So um, with the Spitfires, it, it's less drag. It's really nice for turning as well. But why wouldn't I go for a 300? Uh it depends on what you're trying to do. You know, there are there are we've actually got team riders that that actually still use the the 250 and the 275 and the 300 for surfing, They've, and they like the the minimal span, but they like having the area on there. You know, there's people that say we've got too many wings in our range, and too many fuselage and too many everything. But I guess um, with Axis, you can get exactly what you want. You've got to put the time in to work out what works for you. And, you know, I, I think that's a journey that really benefits a lot of people to, to, to work out exactly what works for them. You know, riding the, the fuselage, um, uh, Dylan, he's on the 1201, and his favorite fuselage is a psycho short. That's, that's an unreleased fuselage length. It's 40 mils shorter than a silly short. Calling it psycho short should be fair warning that it's not for everybody. Um, and he loves that, and that's what works for him. And he uses the 36045 um, as his go-to with the 1200, and that's that's the setup that he likes. Um, you know, yep. But it's kind of fine-tuning, and in there there'll be there'll be exactly what you want. But you it's just kind of jumping forward a little bit. But two-part question. Yes, I you know I I would argue when I was selling foils in the shop again, you know post lessons and stuff, it would be hard sometimes with access to know what to sell to people because there's so much availability. Um, but I also know that if I was in your position and I had my own foil brand and as an engineer, like I would love developing product and throwing product out there if it was different to what was already there. So I can understand both sides. And my question is what motivates you nowadays 
are you particularly financially motivated or is it a case of right as long as we're making money to keep this going that's enough and if that's the case like what are your other big motivators running access so i mean access is a partnership between me and evan evan's based in the us and i'm based in new zealand um Evan's kind of the moderator a little bit. Like if it was just me, we'd be endlessly building um, new product and having way too much on the market. You know, Evan tries to look at it and goes, well, you know, from a customer point of view, how are we actually going to, who's going to buy this and how and, you know. Um, and and it is a balance of actually trying to work out what's worthy to get out there and how we, how we do that. And I still think, you know, every part of our collection is is worthy. You know, there's, there's bits in there for everybody. And, uh, you know, if somebody's learning to get into foiling and they've never done anything before, the SES, it just takes the, you know, the, as a beginner package, they they start on that. We've got three different um, front wing sizes and you just buy it as a package in a bag and you take it home and learn. And after you've learned to foil three months, six months later, you've got an idea in your head about what works and what doesn't. And then you're actually ready to start your journey and work out what you want from there. A lot of the shops that know a lot about foiling, you know, they're selling a lot of the um, the BSC, the 970, the 1060 for guys learning to wing. And, you know, that's a very easy journey to start on as well. It's very easy to learn on and easy to get going. And six months later, you know more about foiling. You can work out where you want to go. And I think w- with access, you could just one piece at a time. You can sort of work your way to the direction that you want to go. Foiling's going in a lot of different directions. Do you think you could sell and more product? Because I do agree that you've got a lot of stuff for a lot of the market. Do you think you could sell more if you marketed more or had a, yeah, a more aggressive marketing strategy? I, I don't know that we've actually... We, we, tr- we don't do a massive amount of marketing, That's kind of my really. Point. We do a little bit, <laughs> but I, I guess well, what we... I think what we put our time and effort into is trying to build the absolute very best of everything, you know, and that's what we, that's what we spend our money on. Maybe we do it. We do it. Uh, you would, you know, we do it because we're passionate about foiling, and you know, we're trying to make the best thing that we can possibly make. You know, it's, that's what motivates us to do the next thing. No, that's. I also. We keep talking about Jeremy, but Jeremy is a good example. When I first saw a video of him riding, he was riding the 880 HPS and the 980, and it was at his local local break, and he was pumping back out and catching, you know, he was linking five waves or whatever, and I was really impressed with the speed that he could pump the 880, and um, I started talking with him and ended up working with him, and we actually developed the, the ART 999 with him, and then the, the 1099, and you know, working with someone like that to try and achieve what they've got as a vision in their head for foiling. And now, again, with the Spitfire, like he was stubbornly determined that we could make a, a surf wing. He had an idea in his head, a concept of what he wanted, and we were trying to work together to provide that. And How do you, you know, choose those it, guys? It wasn't then, easy. So that was a question that we, we, we'd looked at because the team is, is very sporadic, Um where do, where do you meet these guys and why do you think you know why does Jeremy appeal? We all know he's a good he's a good fella, but why is he a team rider for Axis? Why is Dylan? Why is Shannon? These guys? Why are those specific guys? Uh, one at a time. Jeremy is is very um, 
like I said before, he's very clear about what he wants to achieve with everything. And, you know, we're just trying to, to work that out. I and mean, there's still a lot of stuff that we want to develop to make it better for him. One example of that is, you know, his big way of surfing at, at, um, at Wedding Cake, you know, he was surviving, and he, I think he actually did pretty good in that. Like, if you if you looked at the surfers and how they were doing, I think he was actually having a better time than them. I do. But I remember just to interject because I know mind, you're going to go on to the other riders. I remember seeing a post of of his social media, and I remember him saying something along the lines of, "I've got a totally different vision for how this day could have been if the gear catches up." Almost. Yeah, he wants to draw lines that the tool for drawing those lines is not yet done. <laughs> and I don't think any brand, I don't think any brand has that yet. I think that's still to come. And, you know, is that possible? I don't know. So, you know, there's a huge motivation to try and find out, you know, what, how far we can go with the next thing on that. Um, I don't know. A lot of these guys, I'm thinking, we've got a lot of team riders and people that we work with. I, I would say generally, um, they're people that we like and that we can get on with well uh, and that have got a bit of a vision with it. Um, uh, Dominic, um, you know, I first saw him doing a video talking about tailwings for another brand. He did a video and it was about half an hour long talking about tailwings. And I didn't know who the guy was, but I just said, look, mate, I replied to him. I said, way too many words. You could have said all of that you need to say in five minutes max. That would have done it. And, you know, he could have taken offense at that, but he, he was, you know, we developed a rapport and started talking after that. And he ended up testing some of our wings and, you know, he's very analytical and works very well with stuff like that. So, you know, that just came out of that. Um, um, Shannon, he was one of the early foilers and he'd been trying a bunch of different foil brands and then tried Axis and really, really liked it. So, you know, he sort of asked, you know, if, if he could work with us and, um, he created some really good videos and nice guy and easy to work with and, you know, natural. It's a natural connection for access yeah, to And I, I to guess that like goes that. back to the, the likes of the marketing thing where you don't market masses. It could be a little mm. bit frustrating from my point and Tom's point sat here, but it works really well. And then you get these um, organic relationships with the riders by the sounds of things. You're not a brand to go and throw loads of money at it so to get a bit more feedback i guess if you i i regard all of the all of the team riders they're like family you know we're all connected and it's um it's a pretty special connection and also with that we've got the there's the access foil riders group on facebook and that's a bunch of passionate access nice. riders and um <laughs> you know yeah, people come and ask silly questions on that. How do you do this? What works well with this or whatever? And sometimes I think, oh, I should jump in. And then I thought, oh, just hang on. And there's there's half a dozen people come up with really good suggestions and they do it in a, in a kind, really nice way. And it's it's really good to see that working. And I kind of feel like the, you know, the Axis riders, the customers, everybody, it is like a family. And they all, you know, they're genuinely trying to help out and help everyone find their way with a combination that's going to light What's them the up. the stupidest thing you've been asked on that po- page? Because there's some sh- there's some shockers on there. <laughs> He's not going to say, is he? <laughs> um, I would say, I know I, I, I get myself in trouble sometimes because um, I think I'm an engineer and I've got an engineering brain and it just 
entirely obvious to me. So I'm a little bit blunt with my replies sometimes, and that does tend to offend and some fantastic. people. And I'm learning to be they a little are bit more the moral. best ones. <laughs> We've had laughs between ourselves. I'm trying to be. I'm, yeah, I'm trying to be more moderate with it. I also like I'm on that. There's a I don't know, backyard board builders group, and same on that too. Like I've built an awful lot of boards over the years, and I feel like I really know what I'm doing with construction. And it, it's not like I need to think about it. I've built so many boards that I can just give good advice to somebody straight away. And then some people just challenge me on that, and I just go, "Okay." I I absolutely love it. I I'm in you know, both of those groups, and I have you pinned so that i always see your replies to things and i have been literally laughing out loud on a number of occasions especially it is it's actually the more interesting yeah. ones for me well for, for one as someone that has built you know stuff and learned from you and other people in those groups thank you i'm surprised that you take the time obviously the access for groups you have a bit more of a natural motivation but the board building one not at all so thank you for contributing expertise and also thank you for the entertainment of the random people that decide to disagree with you with very poorly reasoned arguments as well that's always brilliant Oh, we get there in the end. We'll one the one end. question Liam had here, which I guess ties in really nicely, is because you, you mentioned you have been around for a very, very long time now, Adrian. You've worked with tons of people in the industry and Mike Raper, Hugh Pinfold, two of the names that uh, Liam's jotted down here. Do you still keep in touch with those guys? You know, I know there's, especially New Zealand, is is a big foil hub of design work. Do you keep in touch with those guys? Do you bounce with ideas off anybody? Who do you who do you come up with these things with? Aside from the writers, I haven't actually I haven't actually bumped into them for for a good while. I think they're actually not that far away from where we are here. We we kind of just do our own thing for for foiling ideas here, you know. Um, and a lot of the time, people say, "Have you seen this foil or that foil?" No, we haven't. We don't get to see an awful lot here. We're we're on our own little. Thing. We just develop and focus on our own thing. I have, like, I'm trying to, I think I'm 50 something, 58 or 59 or something now. And I built my first board when I was about 15 years old. It was a windsurfer. And uh, I just wanted a windsurfer, but my parents wouldn't buy me one. But my mother offered to help me build it. And so I built it. It was polystyrene in the, in the back room and it was just polystyrene bubbles everywhere forever um and i did it with a plywood skin it was out of a french windsurfing magazine i hated learning french at school but i had to learn a bit more so i could translate and work out how to actually build this board so i built it all myself with with the help of my mother i made the mast i made the sail made every part of it and really enjoyed building stuff and i've been building stuff ever since then um I built quite a few more windsurfers myself after that, and then I got sponsored in windsurfing, and I worked for a company called Windsurf and Ski, and we used to do Wind Toys Hawaii boards in in New Zealand, and I did that for a, a long time, and then when I was 19, I moved to Hawaii, and I actually moved to Oahu. I didn't know that Maui was the place to go, um, and I spent a month or so there. I was working for Windsurfing Hawaii back in the early days, and... Then everyone kept coming back from Maui and saying how good it was. And so I rang uh, a few places on Maui trying to find a job. And I had a contact with someone that worked at Sailboard's Maui retail store. So I rang the retail store and they said, no, nah, we've got nothing. Try the factory. So I rang the factory and some guy called Jimmy mm -hmm. Lewis picked up the phone. 
And um, he said, um, you know, what do you do? And I said, I'm a laminator. And he said, oh, a laminator left yesterday. How soon can you get here? And I said, I'll be there this afternoon. So he picked me up at the airport, gave me a job laminating. And, you know, I, I did a lot of time with him. And he, he kind of got me the basics of shaping and got me started with shaping. And he was a great guy. And it was the early days of speed sailing. So I did a lot of... Um, you know, I was laminating boards. Um, you know, Fred Haywood was in his speed sailing days, and and it was Eric Beale and, and all of those guys. I did a ding repair for Fred, and um, I dropped it back at his house after I'd finished the board. And he said, "Here you go. Take this board, have a play on it. Once you've learned all you've done, come back and grab the next one." And I worked his tray through his speed boards, and he taught me how to how to, you know help me out getting into speed sailing and got right into that for a while and I competed in speed sailing windsurfing and I was uh, first in New Zealand, had the speed record and I was 13th in the world with that. I also did um, windsurf uh, course racing, slalom racing and I even did uh, wave sailing competition early on and I actually won the, won the nationals in New Zealand in all three of those disciplines. So I did windsurfing forever and really enjoyed doing that. And I think part of the reason that I did well with that was the fact that I actually built all the gear myself and it was really well tuned and it worked really well. I would swap with people, you know, slalom race gear, course race gear, and they would hop on my gear and come by and say, it's so easy to ride. And I just have to lie on the water with their gear because I couldn't even ride it. I just couldn't physically hold onto it. It just throw me off. So I think I was quite good at actually getting everything balanced and making it easy to ride. And I think I've carried that forward into foiling and then after that um, kite surfing started and I did a lot with with kite surfing in the windsurfing times I also worked for uh, Ed Angulo when he first came to Maui um, and they were doing a lot of the asymmetricals and a lot of cool boards and got a lot of friends from these times when I was working there Mark Raphorst um, he's a chap I'd like to have a, was a SIC. he'd be an interesting one to chat to He's got yeah. some interesting designs coming out of the. He's a very interesting guy. Instagram page. Yeah, he d- he dances his own tune. His whole life is just his own thing. Like he doesn't, you know, more than anyone else I've ever met. He just does his own thing. He doesn't care whether you like it or not. That's fantastic. Um, I also worked for Peter Tommen, uh in Hawaii for for years, and uh, at the time we were doing all the race boards for Bjorn and Britt Dunkerbeck, who were the world champions and. Most of the, the, the top riders were riding um, Peter's board. So um, Peter did all the shaping. I did all the board building. Um, and another guy, Marcus Roma uh, from Switzerland, he did all of the, the finishing of the boards. And it was we learned an awful lot then. It was you know great fun building boards for years and now we were that. Did you have the same passion? And then we did, did kite surfing. Did you have surfing? the same passion for... <laughs> The kite surfing side of things, because like as someone that's got this background in windsurfing and now foiling, was that just following the market or? It, it to- totally the, the whole thing was. Um, I look back on all of it, like windsurfing to to kite surfing and now foiling, and it's, I never really got and sort of said, right now, should I do this or what's the best option? I was just full speed ahead, still am, um, doing what I wanted to do, and when I started kite surfing. I looked at it and went, wow, that looks cool, and just totally got into it. And after I'd been doing it for, you know, a time, we ended up building boards and exporting them, and it turned into a business. But the business wasn't the motivator. It was the fact that I was just totally stricken with the idea of learning how to do it. 
what I think I like doing is actually working stuff out, you know, working out a puzzle. And with kite surfing, when we started, what's a board supposed to look like? You know, it was all new. And a bit the same with foiling. When we started foiling, um, there were other companies building foils. And I, I asked a lot of questions, you know, why is this? Why is this? You know, for example, the, 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 the fuselage and the front wing, they, they were basically parallel. And my question is, why don't you do the, the front wing at, at, at its optimum angle of attack? Like every foil, when, when it foils, more angle of attack uh, creates more lift. Less angle of attack is more speed, but there's a sweet spot we we're talking about before. And depending on the foil section and how fast it's going to be operating at, um, you know, the BSC they're set at two degrees to the fuselage. Um, most of the high performance wings are set at about one degree to the fuselage. Why aren't they set at an, at an angle? Why are they set parallel? Because if you set it parallel, if the if the if the wing is running at two degrees your fuselage is dragging through the water like that. And so I asked I asked questions and nobody had any answers. So we sort of had to work it out for ourselves. And that puzzle of working it out is what actually keeps me entertained. That's, that's the engineer side of it, isn't it? It's the lifelong learning, problem solving, that whole, whole attitude. Yeah. The, the reason I bring yeah. up the kite surfing yeah. thing and the reason that that's interesting to me is because I think it's another mm. example of you creating product that was well received and not something that you were using personally because me and freddie were actually reminiscing and trying to think of some of the riders that was on the axis gear back in the day and the first thing that came to my mind is the riding of um billy parker because wasn't he on a lot of the was it billy parker that was on a lot of the oh, yeah, axis yeah. twin tips and yeah. you yeah. know that whole wake style scene I mean, I'm, I'm I'm assuming you weren't out there in the park hitting kickers and rails when that was big in kite surfing. I, I actually I actually went I went to Florida and hung out with him and actually went to the wake, local wake park and watched him ride in a Which competition. Which one did you go to? He hadn't been out for oh I don't know what it was called. It was it, he hadn't been competing for six months, so he just went in this contest randomly. He has got another level of anyone you see. Like everything he does, he does with style. And when he's coming into land, he just seems to have a, an extra half second or whatever to make a clean, perfect landing. He's just amazing. I was rider. trying to describe it to Freddie. And very, very late. I was, I was lucky enough yeah, to, to meet back. him um, at the Triple S years ago. And he was one of those that, yeah, you'd see the odd bit of media every now and then, but he was not in the limelight at the forefront of kite videos coming out and seeing it in real life. I was like, why is this guy not the poster child? He's for a bit one like Mark. But then you meet him and you sort of understand his personality and he's as laid back as he is, like you said, and you're like, no, that makes sense. For sure. Oh, that's interesting. So the the, the passion for kite surfing was there almost as much as the foiling and the windsurfing. So it's kind of different, isn't it? Like the twin tip construction, it's, yes, it's technical. Yes, as an engineering product, but it's not as wave driven. I don't think about it as being as soulful. The uh, the twin tips that we did back in the time. So I had my own my own company way back when, which was Underground. Yeah, um, and um, that was based in New Zealand. And we 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 basically worked out how to how to press boards. Like when when kiteboarding started, I didn't want to do uh, the EPS construction same as windsurfers. So I was trying to work out a, a good way to build boards and we ended up building a, a pressed, const- it was actually vacuum bag construction. We came up with a wave trace to start with. I had little 
little flip tips, a little step and a flip tip on each end. Uh, and, you know, they were really amazing boards at the time. But we basically were pioneering new ideas and ways of building things. And then we came up with the airbag. Well, I mean, it wasn't new. It was a construction that had been in use for snowboards for many years. But we, we basically worked out how to do that to build um, uh, kite boards. And we were one of the first to build kite boards out of that. And then, um, again, the, the core material, you know, as people started doing kite loops and are coming in hot and smashing <laughs> stuff all the time, the, the PVC cores just weren't up for it anymore. So we ended up trying to find a different material. And um, I actually sourced polonia wood, and, and we were the first to use polonia wood as a core in kite boards. And that's kind of the normal material that everyone uses now. And um, working out how to CNC cut that and press those boards. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, challenging uh, stuff to learn through all that time. So that was, you know, it was a fascinating time to do stuff. The end of all of that, um, I had a, a retail store and a factory building boards underground. The, the retail store was called Groundswell. And um, I was doing it with a partner, Alan Taylor, and he had a sail loft in there as well. And the whole lot burned to the ground one one, uh, oh my goodness. one Saturday night. So Sunday morning, the whole lot was gone. And that was pretty devastating, you know, going in and finding nothing, nothing left. It was all just burnt. And going through the whole insurance mess of that and trying to rebuild it and get everything going again, that was – it was it was really hard, and um, by the time I'd finished doing that, I was just I was kind of burned out, and I just I'd had enough. And somebody offered to buy my company Underground, and I actually sold the brand, and they bought the brand for our technology that we had, and they moved it to China, and they built boards for just about every company, and I worked for them in China, and I also was involved with working to market Underground globally and, and I was mainly selling in New Zealand and Australia and I set up in the US I set up Evan, my partner in Axis, um, as the US distributor he was the first ever to buy a, an, an underground board in America back in the day, so I'd known him for a very, very long time and, you know, we, we did that and after five years um, underground under the new owners kind of disappeared various reasons it was um but i learned a lot uh, during that time but it was kind of difficult also because you know there's something you put your lifetime into uh and watching it just sort of go down mm. down down and everything and then evan suggested that we start our own company and we came up with the name axis and did whatever from there it was kiteboarding to start with um but it's obviously morphed into yeah, it's funny because I um, I didn't know that story and I've always just sort of I thought that Axis naturally came out of underground and I've always pictured two and two as the same in my head and just that's your products. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was a journey. In terms of technical challenges, then uh, again, it's kind of a two-part question, but you've got one of the highest regarded connections in terms of the fuselage both to the mast and to the front wings um how much of that and maintaining modularity and sort of compatibility with existing product gets in the way of potential 
future improvements to that system? Like, have you already got little ideas where you're like, oh, I could make that better a little bit here, but if it's only 5% better, you know, you can't risk the compatibility issue. There's always, we've tried to keep everything as much as possible compatible so that you can just chop and change and and work your way forward in the whole range. And I think we've, we've done that pretty well. Um, People complain about having to learn on a red fuselage and then changing to a black fuselage, but it's not that big a deal. And once they've actually bought a black fuselage, they end up buying half a dozen different things <laughs> and sizes and advance and whatever. And they're completely over it by then. But that initial step seems, you know, a big deal at the start. I mean, all of those things actually do an important thing. So, you know, you need you need the whole range. But will will you will you do you see in the next, let's say, five years, do you see yourself developing a new and improved system altogether? It does become – no, we're trying to keep it all as compatible as possible, but there are some, some challenges. Like um, you were talking about the dock start thing and the bigger span wings. And, yes, bigger span wings are more efficient uh, if you get everything right. Like the, uh, it's quite hard with dock start. Like when we did the, the 1310, we actually did it in the same foil section as the 1150. Uh, we just scaled it up bigger and added more cord. and Sure, it gave more lift, but the added drag was so much that there was no overall benefit. So we ended up doing a different fall section to make that work. I think long term, um, some ver- for, for if you're really looking at uh, flat water dock start performance, you you need to go more high aspect. There's no doubt about that. And you do need to go slightly bigger spans. But to do that, you also need to you need to rely on your connections even more. So I kind of think it's somewhere that you can't even go unless you have, you know, a a really good fuselage, a really good connection from your fuselage to your mast and a really stiff mast. And what I see at the moment is people just flopping out bigger and bigger and bigger wings without the thought going into uh, the, the connections that are required to actually drive and support that. And, I guess you could also look at that as like, I mean, the existing record at the moment for, for Doc Start is, uh, is, I think, some Spanish guy on a uh, 1350 Saab foil, um, and he, he's done 45 minutes. The two previous before that was um, guys on, on Axis on the 1310. Um, but my point being is that all these massive wings have come out, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger wings. And it, you would assume it so that they're better at pumping, but if they're better at pumping, why are they not bigger? Rec- you know, why is there not a new record? One hour, one hour twenty, whatever. Why isn't there bigger records? Site tangent, but related. Like, what's your opinion on the sort of monoblock construction style, where each front wing comes with the front section of the fuse, including the mast connection? Surely that's a pretty good idea. In the same way that you were talking about having your fibers running from the mast plate into the mast? Yes and no. Um, the problem is that there's such massive differences between the, the position of the mast in the fuselage, like our, our original position and the advanced position and some of the stuff we've experimented with since then. Uh, it, it makes a massive difference. And if you do that, what you're describing as monoblock, you're committed, that's it. That's where the mask goes. You can't adjust that and change that and 
you know you and that to me is way too much of a limitation so you're seeing what you're saying that customers are going to have the same front wing but they are going to use that same front wing potentially for a period of time on a normal fuse and then for a period of time later on an advanced fuse there's already already got that like i've got some local riders here um some of them are riding advanced fuselage and they they absolutely the way forward they love it and i've got some on the standard fuselage they wouldn't touch the they've tried the advanced and then gone back to the standard they really like the standard so it depends where you are on your foil do gym. you accept that there are structural advantages though it, I think with the axis system, with the with the bit that inserts into the wing and the, the the bolts that are separated at the front, I think that's a very very good connection. And you know, you're relying on the tension in the bolts. So even even if it wears after a year, two years, you just tighten that wing up, and it's still attached as tight as the day that you first did it. Interesting. It'd be good to come up with um, like you've got your bend test for the mast. It'd be good to you know come up with some tests similar to that and compare them back to back i think i can talk you through some of that like the 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 fuselage the advanced fuselage system when we originally came out with a 920 the very first one uh we actually did the mast um, directly on top of the front wing and the idea of that was that it was you know a better place engineering wise to attach your mast it would be stronger and it foiled. It actually foiled fine, but it didn't turn that well. Every time you turned, you'd sort of fall off. It wouldn't follow you through. And we thought it was something to do with the, the front wing or the back wing we had at the time. And so we started redesigning that. But as part of that, as a control, we built a fuselage where the mast was mounted further back in a more normal position in the fuselage. And um, actually, Mark Rapos was the first one to get that. And he just hopped on that and he said, perfect don't change anything it's like hang on that wasn't supposed to fix it so that began a journey with where the mask goes in the fuselage so um way back then we actually experimented a lot with the position of the mast in in the um in the fuselage and found big differences in that um and we we found a spot that we're happy with and we've pretty much run with that uh so the distance from the front leading edge of the mast to the thickest point in the wing has remained the same ever since um when we so we did that for years but then as the wings have become more and more a high aspect that the effect of the neck of the fuselage has looked longer and longer and longer so um i I guess a year or so we decided to redo that experiment and we did uh the mast at a plus 20 and a plus 40. we tested all of that and they both had an advantage but we liked the plus 40 because it gave a more connected feel uh, and it felt way better for, for surfing and turning and also gave more balanced foot pressure. So we ran with that and we've done that. That's been great. But we also were looking to do a fuselage in two parts so that people weren't so daunted by the, the thought of getting a crazy short or a standard or whatever. They could just take the back bit off and stick another size on there. But to, to develop something like that, you need to work out the parameters. What's the most extreme you're going to go in any direction. So with doing that, we thought we'd better try um, a plus 60 fuselage to the mast even further forward. And we did that with the idea of eliminating it. Turns out it works really good. So what are you going to do after that? You've got to carry on going. So we did a plus 80, a plus 95, and a plus 132 fuselage. The 132, the mast is moving further and further forward. And the plus 132 fuselage, 
we had to put more boxes in the board so that everything could be in the same place. So effectively, when we were doing this test, the, the front wing, back wing, your front foot, your back foot, the board was in exactly the same position through the whole testing procedure. The only thing that changed was the position of the mast. Yeah. Uh, and starting with the 132, it had no inclination to foil. That is, you could be going along the water faster and faster and faster. It just didn't come up. You could ollie up onto it, but it didn't come up naturally. And then when it did come up, it was all back foot pressure to hold it up. Bearing in mind that the, everything is in the same place, so it should be the same. What's the position of the mask got to do with anything? Why does that change? You couldn't work it out. Um, but you, it was 100% back foot pressure just to hold it up. And then as we came back and used the 95 and the 80, they were also back foot as well, and they were they were too neutral. Like there's a – when you foil, you, you want to have reasonably even foot pressure – but you want to have a little bit of more front foot pressure. That's your feel. That's what you. That's what you judge your feel by. But that that depends on every rider. Every rider likes a different amount of front foot pressure. Now, going back to our original fuselage with the original position, the beauty of that is you got some guy that's learning how to wing. Um, he grabs hold of the wing. He starts trundling along. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He has no idea about the foil, and it just automatically lifts up and foils along. It's ridiculously easy to use in that original position. So there's still, you know, a valid reason for having that fuselage. It's just fantastic for learners. The problem with that fuselage is as you get more experienced and want to go faster, the front foot pressure builds up too much. So you, it, you, it gets harder and harder to hold down. An advanced fuselage actually reduces that front foot pressure and puts you more in balance. So it's better for a, a more advanced rider. So you, you kind of need both of those, and it's a really important thing to have. Um, the other discovery I made is I was always looking at windsurfers and thinking they were stupid for having their fuselage, you know, their mast so far back in the fuselage. I couldn't work out why they were doing that. And I concluded that it was because they didn't want to move their fin boxes because they were just <laughs> stubborn, you know. But I actually worked out why that works. And the reason the reason being is, so uh, thinking back through that whole system again, you know, why, why is it why is there a difference with the position that the mast is there? So that, that mast is actually giving drag. So it's actually trying to rotate the whole thing up. And the further back you put it, the more of a lever arm you've got, so the more active it is to lift it up. The further forward it is, the less active that lever arm is, and the you know the less the more balanced the foot pressure is. With a windsurfer, you've actually got to lift the whole weight of that board, the stupid rig and the stupid rider. All that's got to be lifted up. So <laughs> Sorry, by having the mast so far back, brilliant. you've got the leverage to actually lift all of that crop but out you, of yeah, the water. The, the, I, I would think about it all in terms of center of rotational effort. So, moving your mark. So, where's the center of rotational? Where's the center well, of rotation? Well, by moving the mast, the mast is the point at which the force is interacting. So, the mast is the point at which you have to do your calculation from. That would be, be like when you do a bending moment diagram. You you will do your bending moment diagram and assess it over a period of lengths. And I would say that you're doing it at the position that the mast is at, and then you're calculating all your forces from there. Um, so it kind of makes sense in my mind. And like with the windsurfing example as well, you've got all of that effort of the sail going through the mast foot, which is also going to add into that equation. 
I don't know the last time I drew a bending moment graph. I think I I think your your center of everything is your front foil. You know, you're basically foiling. You're riding your front foil. The the, the fuselage and rear wing is your stabilizer. Your mast is your connector. But I think the 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 pivot point, if you like, for everything is is your front wing. So I think everything's oper- operating from there. Um, maybe, yeah. Um, it's still a work in progress. I'm not entirely sure about well, that. Depend, it depends what you're assessing in terms of that's obviously a big design feature, but <laughs> I would argue that if you're thinking about it from a rider's feeling perspective, then you always have to come back to kind of the nearest component through which those forces get translated to. And I guess that your mast position inserted to the fuselage is closer to the point of input of forces and yeah it will like you say that there's a reason that you have that big change of effect isn't it in terms of that pitching moment because i think you are moving the center of rotational effort of the front and the rear wing working together it's absolutely there there's no doubt about it you know like it's it's black and white when you ride with the mast that far forward and that far back it's it's totally there um and it it has an effect. So when we did that experiment, I did it and, you know, made myself a, a bunch of fuselage, but I also did for a bunch of the team riders and, you know, they all found similar sort of things. Some of them actually quite liked the, the plus 80, but most of them, the, the plus 60 was kind of the, the nicest balance of the whole lot. So speaking of fuselages, for our well-heeled friends that are on Axis gear and are on the high modulus carbon mast and, uh, carbon everything else when are they going to get a carbon fuselage i quote just so i don't get the slightly crusty aluminium look after a while in salt water so what what are the advantages of a carbon fuselage? that it doesn't that it doesn't um that you don't get a tiny bit of oxidation after a period of time and that everything looks carbony as i said i'm asking for our well-to-do friends <laughs> I, I don't think there's any particular advantage. It's going to be a lot more expensive. That's fine. They all they 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 earn a lot of money, Adrian. So I wouldn't worry about that. I've got to see a performance gain, and I don't I don't see it. Like trying to get the uh, the screw threads to hold in a, in a carbon fuselage, it's not as easy. Uh, also, where the mast fits into the fuselage um, and wants to try and crack the sidewall off, you're going to have to build the fuselage a lot thicker at that point. Um, so it's going to actually add a lot of drag. It's not going to work as well. I don't see any benefit, you know, I, I, because it's going to have to be so much thicker and so much bigger. I, I really, I can't see it weighing any less either. I don't think there's any particular advantage. We also, in our simulation that we've been doing, we were pretty much running the front wing and testing that out and, and getting all the simulation results from that. We've recently started doing the simulation as an assembly so we actually do front wing and we do 500 millimeters of mast and we do the rear wing and at the moment the assembly was uh we had no fuselage you don't actually need a fuselage for a simulation um and running that and getting a lot a lot of results from that and and actually adding it all together then we started adding the fuselage in there as well and there's a huge amount of drag from the fuselage so, you know, you want that fuselage to be running as much as possible straight through the water and you want it to be as fine as possible. But you also want it not to break and you want it to join really strongly to the front wing and, you know, there's a lot of things that you want. And I think making that out of carbon, 
I can't what see about me if I know I know that the I know that the um, pragmatic answer to this question is travel and all the rest of it. But what about a one piece integrated mast and fuse? Would you see an advantage for that for the uh, well to do customer? Um, maybe, maybe. Um, but the problem is, is that is you know, if I look at our team riders, every one of them rides a different length fuselage. Mm, sure. Every one of them rides a different size rear. So if you're talking about a front wing fuselage, back wing as an assembly, and you want to try and get it to fit as many people as possible, you know, it's just going to be impossible. The the beauty of the system at the moment is you can just plug and play and bolt this onto that and, you know, work your way through it until you find your perfect setup. Yeah, fair. But you could charge them so much more, right? Money, Adrian. I wish there was a simple answer. You could charge them loads. You could retire. It's not about that. Job done. Who gives a shit? I couldn't actually ship the stuff around the yeah, world well, that's either. that's the bit that I'm thinking about. I'm like, that's a lot of containers. Yeah. Right, well, um, it's yeah. quite late here, but I've got a few more quickfire questions that I'd quite like to throw in at the end, uh, if you wouldn't mind. And hopefully these these are yeah quick to answer. Do you know which are your biggest markets by region? And is it significantly different? Uh, we did that exercise recently, and it's surprising how similar they are. Like New Zealand is actually a really big market for us. Tiny population, but I guess it's because I'm here waving <laughs> the flag and stuff. We actually sell a lot of stuff uh, in New Zealand. Australia is a really good market for us. Um you know, the U.S. obviously is a lot of people, and Evan's based there, so that's a great market for us. Um, U.K. is actually a good market. We get a lot of lot of business from there too, um, and then Germany and France are also good markets. There's a lot of other smaller markets in there, but those bigger ones that I've mentioned, they're surprisingly similar. You know, we've we've got quite good penetration. Yeah, those are your classics. I just wondered. Percentage-wise, you know, if you were to just take those, how close are we all? Because Germany, for us, is all—they're always ten times as big as we are. US must be another ten times as big as them, in my eyes. Or are we closer than that? Wind sports aren't massive in the US, are they? True. I think there would be a better question to ask Evan. I can't <laughs> yeah, go to the accountant. <laughs> yeah. All right, that was that. So. Do you know roughly, like, what's the most successful range? And do you actually have a rough number, like how many units you've sold the most successful range? I can't remember stuff like that. I know that one of our most successful wings ever was the old 900. Remember the 900 that was designed as a windsurfing right. wing and then worked for it? That was incredibly popular. sold more 999s um, or, or HPS or something than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like historically, I'm saying that 900 was an amazingly popular wing. I would say if we had to try and say what we've sold most of, actually, surprisingly, that PNG 1150. Yeah, that's got a solid reputation. I still reputation. reckon that seems to be the, the, the – it's still got the benchmark as the wing to try and learn to, to dock start pump on. Easy to use and, and still turnable and fun to play on. How many of them do you reckon you've made? Had made. Oh, I mean, how many thousands are we, we talking? We sell a, a huge... 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. I know, you'd have to ask. Oh, give us a, give us a number, Adrian. Me. Come on. <laughs> give us something. <laughs> Rough numbers. Uh, 
Uh, I don't exactly know. Probably more than 3,000. Cool. I don't know, okay. though. Cool. That's good. That's just curious. Yeah, yeah we, we, don't, we, don't know, we don't know how big Axis is in the UK in comparison to everybody else. We're really happy with how it's going. And likewise, we don't know how the UK goes compared to all the other countries. It's just, you know, I just want to feed the ego, know that we're doing well and, and know what's happening. I, it's, I, um, I focus more on building building the next thing rather than working <laughs> yeah. on how they were built with that one. And, so this one, this yeah. one, um, we're going to have to drive for an answer. And I worry that what you've already said about where you are in the world and not having lots of other gear, you might try and go for a cop-out. But which brand other than Axis do you respect most or appreciate the design of most? Which is your favourite? What sort of gear would you be using if it wasn't Axis? That's a tricky question. Um, there's a lot of them I'd write off. <laughs> yeah, save that. I've got another question, connection. so save that for the next one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if they don't pass the solid connection between the wing and the fuselage and the mast, if they don't pass that, then they don't pass go. So they've eliminated themselves. So I can't choose those. Um, I, uh, if you, um, I, I admire what Marcus does. Uh, and with code foil starting, I'm sure he'll build a good foil. Um, there you yeah. go. That's cool. And so there things, you go. yeah, yeah, yeah. An and things <laughs> yeah. are um, things are good. Presumably, then, as as are you wish wishing him a fond farewell and good luck to Mister Casey. Oh fuck him! Yeah, I mean James, <laughs> he's a he's a he's a great guy. No, he's a great guy, and he was really good to work with. And Marcus was also a team rider back in the day, so I've spent a lot of time with Marcus over the years, and they're they're both good guys. I you know wish them all the best with what they do. I think it's a a big ask now to come out with a whole entire foil range, you know, and you need you know pump wings you know winging wings down it's a whole range it's a lot well, of I definitely stuff. haven't started with that have um, I? <laughs> the other side of it well it's difficult it is difficult you know to do all of that work and to actually pay for all of that as well the other part is too is i think that why one of the reasons that axis is does quite well is that we build um foils for your normal sized rider you know your 85 90 kg rider um and you know that's an important thing is to 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 be focused on full-sized riders that's a polite way of putting it or is I, it I, i'm not sure a, it's, a, it's a good one because i remember yeah. watching shannon's first few videos on the range when i was trying to get my head wrapped around it and then getting to the end of the video and hearing that he's 65 kilos and thinking well fuck that doesn't mean anything and i know yeah. having spoken to a few of our larger more fuller uh, figured folk over here that having the likes of Jeremy, even on the podcast, they loved it because he's he's big old big old boy, uh, and something that they can compare against. So is brilliant. looking at looking at some of the weights on that too, and if you're looking at that, the way that the the pump record has evolved, um, you know, the surfing pumping back out, surfing pumping back out. There's I think there's about half a dozen riders that have done about one hour. Um, Jeremy did one hour on the one oh nine nine. Uh, and he's 90 kg or 95 kg. So, you know, that's a big deal. Is that with his, with his kid on his back or not? No, he didn't have his kid on his back that day. Probably could. <laughs> but he probably could have. Um, and then after that, um, Oscar went and set the record of 
two hours, whatever it was, 46 minutes or something, which was just a ridiculous jump from one hour. And, um, you know, I, I actually criticised them. I said, why did you just do it so much? You know, you've made it basically impossible for anyone else to do, to do anything. You basically killed the <laughs> whole competition. And he, he, he was uh, – <clears throat> so the interesting thing was – with Dylan doing it now, Dylan's 82 kilograms. That, that's almost a decent weight. <laughs> and he, he's pumped for three hours, three hours, six minutes. Um, but the interesting thing about it is he did 58 kilometers, 58 kilometers that's in nice three days. hours. And he averaged 18 point, eight, 18.8 kilometers for three, over three hours. Now, um, Oscar's record that he did, he did 30 eight kilometers i think yeah. it, it, it sure is slightly less time but it was only 15 20 minutes difference it wasn't a lot so 38 versus 58 yeah so he's he, you know dylan's a real weight and and he pumped a huge just a ridiculous distance dylan by the way he's he's like he actually stopped pumping at three hours six minutes because it got dark <laughs> and he couldn't see he is actually convinced he can do a whole lot more than that, and I'm encouraging him to learn to dock start. He can't dock start that well. I don't yet. think many people um, can. I think it's an illusion. I think it's AI generated footage. <laughs> to be honest, Adrian. Judging, judging by our um, yeah. goals this evening, I think we're yeah. just going to give up. But I would. So he w- he was writing the 1201, and I would like to to see. I, I actually believe the 1201. Somebody could possibly do a dock start pump record with that and, and hold the world record with that. And that's a very moderate sized wing compared to what most people are talking about. So mm. just imagine you know. what you can do on the sub seventeen fifty. <laughs> I don't think your bloody toe to heel control. You'd end up with car fatigue and it wouldn't be from pumping it, it'd be trying to control the bloody thing toe to heel <laughs> as it's wobbling around. Yeah. Um yeah, well, I think you've answered the next question already. I was just going to say, do you think that there are brands out there that um, that you're not necessarily getting good value from, but it sounds like you'd argue that some of the connections just aren't quite there yet? To me, that's the starting point. And that's, you know, if it doesn't pass that, then it doesn't pass go. Mm, very good. Wow. So is there anything else coming that we should know about? Is there anything else that you want to throw in before we wrap this up? I've very much appreciated your time. There's always more coming. You can guarantee that with us. Um, but I, I would say that we, we, you know, as much as we've got a lot of wings on the market, we try not to bring every single idea we come up with onto the market. You know, the, the ART has been a good couple of years in production, and we haven't actually released uh, an awful lot um, for a long time. Obviously, the PNG 1310, but there hasn't been a a massive amount of, of new stuff. There is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a rush of new stuff coming with what we've got now, um, but that should be it for a little while. You've done quite a run on boards, I guess, uh, for a little while now. The, the downwind boards were quite a big one, weren't they? They yep. sound like they've gone fairly well for you. Uh, you were obviously out in China building some boards, yeah. like you said, as well, yep. and I've seen Olivia's custom board um, that you've made her as well. Yep. Um, were some of the riders after specific boards or, or what? Yep. So some of the boards I was building in China, I was trying to build boards for people that are going to compete uh, in the Morakai to Oahu. And I wanted them to have one of our boards as well as our foils. So I was building boards for 
you know, for those riders. And they were on uh, boards from other brands that are quite well regarded for downwind and they've they've hopped onto the prototypes that I've built and they're really liking them. They're liking them better than what they had. So pretty stoked with that. Good. It's been uh, they were quite different shapes when 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 I when you compare them to Sonova, Kalama, those well, sort of things. <clears throat> this I guess they're sort of based on the, the, the Kalama style board, but they're my own take on that with my own sort of ideas incorporated in that. We we did a the first batch of those and we've just done another batch just finishing now. And um I I can think of an example of a, a guy in Scotland, actually, a friend of mine, he ended up getting the eight foot six and he'd been trying to learn to downwind on a board that was six foot four or something like that by about 24. And he hopped on the eight six by 19 and he thought it was going to be near impossible to ride, but he actually found it very, very easy to ride. And it's become his go-to board. And he actually messaged me recently and said, look, you know, uh, you really should try and push that as an all-round board. A lot of people could get a lot of fun out of that. He uses it for winging and no wind, for flat water paddle-ups, for surfing. Yeah, a friend of ours A friend of ours is finding exactly that. He's had a couple of downwind boards um, and is using them increasingly, not just for – well, in fact, he's hardly used either of them for downwinding, but he's done shed loads of winging on them, shed loads of small wave subfoiling and even paddling thing- prone on. One thing yep. he actually said yesterday, this is Rich that does all the mag testing. Um, it's got the 1201 now. He, yep. he said it quite aptly. Um, it, even if it doesn't, even if the downwind stuff doesn't take off as much as we might think it will over here, because it hasn't realistically, you know, we've sold quite a few a few boards, but they've predominantly been using for flat water pump ups or, or sup foiling or wing foiling. It has pushed the design process behind these boards quite considerably in foot for winging um even when you look at some more more of the high performance boards now they're definitely more streamlined and longer and thinner than they were previously um and yeah tons of people are using them for light winging and and sup foiling which i think is a great thing for people to get into yeah so would you think some light wind winging specific shapes that are heavily inspired by downwinding boards will come out of this yeah, for sure. There's definitely room for something, some more work in that. There's, I'm, I've, um, we've, we've been pretty focused on the, the, the foil stuff at the moment, and you know, the, there's more to do on the boards as well. But there's only so much time mm. in every day. Well, we look, we look forward to seeing what comes. Yeah, and thank you for spending a bit of time with us. Um, I, yeah, I think people. People that are already listening are definitely going to listen to it, and I hope that I hope that the name and the brand inspires a few more to listen to it because I think a lot of what you said is going to be very valuable to a lot of people, and certainly interesting if nothing else. Just trying to make trying trying to make better foils. <laughs> I really like that. I like that passion. I I had a I don't know whether you listened to it or not, but I had a little catch up with Casey the other day, and when we were talking about code foils, he was basically just like. Well, we're making what we want to make and what we like, and we hope other people like them too. <laughs> and I think that's the right place to be coming from. I think if you put, I think, I really do think if you put your everything into something, um, good things will come from it. You know, I think trying to market and copy others or whatever, I just don't think that comes to anything good. You know, if you've got 
the passion to develop something original and and go with it you know i think good things will come from that well as someone that's recently very much fallen in love with the f1 skate which is obviously a direct competitor to the spitfire i'm very much looking forward to having a go on that when uh, when freddie gets his hands on that over here look and, forward uh, yeah yeah very much looking forward look to it. forward to your thoughts on that yep and if you want to send one over earlier for rich at the foiler magazine to test we'd be absolutely all ears adrian yeah, we're working on it. They're not far off. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, well, thank you for spending so much time with us. Uh, we hope you have a great day and start feeling a bit better after all your travelling. And um, Yeah, a little bit of a rest. I'll be, yeah. I'll be good to go again. Brilliant. We'll see you soon. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Adrian. Cheers. See you. Thanks for everything. Bye. There you go. He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. There you have it. That was our interview with Adrian Roper from Axis. Hope you all enjoyed it. I know we did. Uh, again, pretty excited about the whole thing. And as of today, my 840 Spitfire demo just turned up on my doorstep. We're a little bit low on stock because they've all gone straight back out, but I'm very much looking forward to getting out on that. Um, there's waves back as well, which is a nice thing. Tell your mates about the podcast. Share it around. Follow us on social media. We're all already nearly a 1,000 people following us on Instagram, which is really impressive for two people that really don't do a massive amount on there anyway. Um, yeah, get in contact. If you've got any questions, give us a shout, whatever. We will see you in the week. <laughs>